Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars related to game design and publishing. These panels have been made possible thanks to Double Exposure and their game design convention Metatopia at Metatopia Online 2020. These panels have also been made possible thanks to the kind contributions of the panel speakers and moderators at this event. Now, let's get to it. Episode 307 Contract Literacy Whereas, Therefore, and Beyond Presented by Eric Whalen, Rob Hebert, Stephen Long, and Debbie Monahan. This panel does not constitute legal advice. <laughs> Thank you with your patience for your patience, everyone. <laughs> uh, so let's just start with with introductions again. I, I'll go first again. Uh, so my name is Robbie Bear. I go by he/him pronouns. I am a lawyer working out here in Los Angeles. I mostly do uh, 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 audio production contracts and uh, ad sales contracts. Um, and in the games industry, I uh, am an artist and designer. I did the art for Happiest Apocalypse um, and uh, also do pieces for Gallant Knight Games. Uh, my most recent game was Demon Castle Dracula, which is available on Ichio. I'll toss it to uh, Eric. Hi. Um... <laughs> I'm Eric Whalen, he, him pronouns. Uh, I am an IP and contract attorney who works in the board and video game industry, helping out independent designers, like a lot of you that I see in chat. Um, that's most of my shtick. Steve? <laughs> I, my name is Steve Long. Um, I am not an attorney, though I used to be. I gave up practicing law about 22 years ago to become a game designer and writer full time. I'm best known for my work with Hero Games, of which I'm part owner, but at various times I've also done work for a lot of other companies in the industry. I've written or co-written about 200-odd books over my career, and during that time, you know, both as a freelancer and as a company owner, I've prepared a lot of contracts from, you know, every side of the transaction, so that's what landed me here. Debbie? Hi, my name is Debbie Moynihan. I am CEO and co-owner of White Wizard Games. We are most well known for the game Star Realms. And I have worked on lots of contracts here at White Wizard Games, been with the company from the beginning. And also we do international contracts. We have signed designer contracts. And before I joined the board game industry, I was in high tech. So I worked with teams of lawyers on contracts for multi-million dollar deals. So even though I'm not and never have been an attorney, I have reviewed and participated in creating many contracts. Right. And I guess I'm leading it off. Um, so uh, since we didn't have a contract to sort of put on screen, if you have a contract around, uh, feel free to look at it. Many of them follow a very similar formula that we're going to try to... Um, sort of uh, demystify and help you, the audience, learn how to read contracts a little better, navigate them, determine whether or not you need them. You probably do. Um, 
and just sort of gain a greater sense of familiarity with them. Um, the first section of a contract often lays out the parties of who's taking part in them. Um, it'll maybe have the address for people, uh, uh, tell you who's agreeing into what. Uh, party of the first part. Yes, party of the first part. How do you like to do your parties when you were practicing or even now? <laughs> I, I like to avoid that much legalese as much as possible. I mean, the the standard joke in the practice, at least when I was practicing, was you have to have just enough legalese to let the client know what they're paying for. But beyond that, I think legalese, you, you want to try to avoid it because you want people to understand what you're talking about. So rather than saying party of the first part, I usually like to say company and author, for example, in this case, or even to use the actual names, which is even friendlier. You know, you know, White Wizard Games and Eric Whalen. You know. Yeah, I think it's important to to point out that um, that even when um, when you're when you're designing a contract, uh, the whole purpose of it is to establish who the parties to the business relationship are and what the relationship is. And you don't really need legal terms of art to do that. And especially in something like the games industry, where you generally do not have, uh, you know, highly paid lawyers on both sides negotiating in the contract phase, you're usually just trying to encapsulate or crystallize on paper what the expectations are from each side. You're not actually going back and forth on the individual terms as much at that stage. I also that at the beginning when it defines who the parties are for many companies they create a contract template so at the top it'll say who the parties are so it'll say white wizard games quote publisher and you know johnny depp quote game designer and then everywhere else in the contract it won't mention your name instead it will just say game designer so it's really important to look at the top of the contract and figure out what is the word they're using to describe you in the contract so as you read through you know like okay they're talking about me here so i'm in and the words vary sometimes they'll say like license or licensee but you want to figure out the beginning of the contract how are they referring to me so that you know what you're signing up for when you sign the contract at the end and also if you're creating contracts it's good to create a template so that you don't have to go in and replace you know the publisher's name every time you're doing a new contract so it is a good practice but you need to just make sure you're looking at it from your perspective as you read through the contract yeah, yeah there's certainly no sense in reinventing the wheel so if you've got language that works keep it and use it again yeah, and that also reflects back on uh, showing what the relationship is between the parties in the rest of the contract, because uh, I know somebody earlier asked about uh, about writers and things like that, more boilerplate um, concepts in games industry contacts. And one of the reasons why we don't have as much of that in the games industry is because it's not uh, it hasn't been around in the same form as long as some other media. So if you look at something like uh, film and TV production, well, that's been around for a long time. There's a lot of labor law and contract law that has gone into developing that area. So when you're talking about relationships between different people, it's going to be uh, it's going to be very easy to know when it says director or producer or actor 
or writer what those things mean. Whereas it's a little bit, it can be a little bit more amorphous in a uh, in an industry like games. Uh, and so using terms like publisher, designer, artist, writer, etc., can actually make it a lot uh, a lot easier to understand what the relationship is that's being uh, consolidated into that document. At the risk of sounding a little cynical, too, the plain fact is there's a lot more money in TV and movies or in mainstream publishing, and they can afford to have attorneys prepare lengthy documents and argue back and forth about terms. In the games industry, in my experience, most people prepare their own contracts. You know, a lot of them don't even can't even afford to go to an attorney, just have a simple contract prepared. So they work with the forms they can find online or in forms books that you can find in a law library. I, I know from personal experience writing contracts for game designers, um, it is definitely an expense. Uh, I would say that many contracts that I've helped write have run, you know, under a thousand dollars, but it's something that you need to know that you have enough use for it so that you're using the same type of forms, you know, for multiple things. And that's, that's hard for starting designers, um, understandably. When one person brought up in the, in the chat, uh, the, the notion of reusing contract language from contract to contract. So, um, and Eric can probably talk a little bit more about this since he focuses more specifically on IP. But uh, the, the contract that you or a lawyer or, who met or whoever writes, uh, there is intellectual property in that. But a lot of the, um, they, they, don't have, they don't have ownership of sort of standard clauses and things like that. So, so even though you have a copyright in the work product uh, that, that, that you create in a, in a particular business transaction, um, you are going to see a lot of the same language uh, reused over and over again. And in my line of work, a lot of the contracts look very, very similar. And I will often be uh, copy pasting stuff from previous contracts that that I've that I've worked on for a new for a new business relationship. That's very common. Yes, if if you are an artist or went to any of yesterday's artist panels, um, sort of a metaphor for it is that like. When writing these contracts, you trace off of other people's works a lot of time, but you still have to be the artist in the sense of knowing how it all gets together and needs to be correctly formed to uh, represent the type of deal that you specifically are trying to do between parties. And uh, by all means, share with each other contracts, get the information out, just know it's, uh, I know I'm speaking more to Jared Para the other day, um, it it's it's it is sort of like downloading a picture off of a an artist's website to use as the background for Zoom. Uh, we don't like the idea often, but it happens. It should happen to some degree. I know in in the games industry, at least, if you you know ask around, a lot of people are willing to share some of their form contracts. It's generally a pretty insular and friendly industry. Mm -hmm. So, and like I said before, if, even if you can't do that, there are books of legal forms available in law libraries that can at least get you started. Absolutely. It, it, then, then the trick just becomes uh, knowing which language is relevant to the thing that you're trying to do. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah where for basic design 
Yeah, for a basic designer contract, I know that uh, Meeple Syrup, for example, is a Facebook group where they do a lot of content for game designers and they've shared recently a not only a contract, but also a checklist of things to consider as a designer to, to make sure you've considered them in your contract. So there's definitely some resources out there. You know, people can feel free to ping me if they want. I, I can share with you the ones that I have seen that are publicly available. And you can, like someone mentioned, ask other people as well. Most people are willing to share with you. And most of us do copy and paste from other contracts when we're creating contracts for similar type of business deals. There are also a lot of uh, very good online resources. Nolo uh, puts together a, uh, a lot of um, very easy to understand for the layperson contract. Uh, contract education pieces. Um, you can look through that. That's very helpful. They also have uh, N O L O, right? N O L O. Yes, yes. No low. Um, and the other thing that's very that's really good about that is obviously um, the laws can differ from from state to state, and obviously from country to country. For a lot of the things that we're going to be dealing with in the games industry, there's not a ton of difference between, you know, California and Massachusetts and New York. These are, this, it's a, it's pretty basic. Uh, it's going to be pretty basic copyright and contract law is what you're going to see over and over again. And those things don't change too much. And NOLO does a really good job of keeping it, um, keeping it broad and keeping it basic. Uh, also in your own state, there is a, uh, there's going to be a small business association, the SBA. Your local SBA or your state SBA uh, will often have very cheap or even free resources, including like talking to actual lawyers, actual business lawyers about, about simple contract issues. So those are two resources that you can use uh, without, going to a law, without going to a law library. And we strongly recommend you use those as opposed to something like, say, LegalZoom. Um, yeah. Yes. Because, I, you know, as part of my practice, I'm going around to a lot of these free resources and the not free resources and making sure that uh, what I'm offering is better than what you can scrape together for a fixed $100 fee. <laughs> right. And LegalZoom absolutely frightens me when I, I hear someone say, oh yeah, I'll just go to LegalZoom, get a thing, or you know, to one of these other legal rocket things. Uh, there are like three or four of the different sites. Yeah, uh, Rocket Lawyer, LegalZoom, it, all those. It, if, if you could afford it up front, it's better to pay the money up front and save yourself some trouble than to have to pay the, even more money later on when you get into trouble. Yeah. Uh, um, there's a question in the, in the chat about um, about uh, trap clauses and red flags in the uh, in in contracts, and I, I think there's a I think there's a couple of directions to take this. Um, there are uh, there are red flags in terms of oh this person doesn't know what they're doing, right? They've cobbled. They're not a lawyer. They're not, you know, uh, they don't have experience on the business side of things, and they've cobbled something together from a bunch of different resources, um, and that that's one type of red flag. Another type of red flag is when you're reading a contract, and I'm trying to think of the best way to explain this. Uh, it it appears that somebody is trying to trick you into something, so they do know what they're doing, but rather than 
writing the contract in a way that it's meant to be understood by both parties and to be consolidating the agreement between the two of them, they're trying to sneak things, they're trying to sneak things in there. So um, sometimes I'll see a licensing contract that has some clauses buried in there that have all, you know, the, the, the person uh, selling the license is also giving up all kinds of other additional legal rights that, that they would have. And that really reduces their protection. So um, I'm sure, I'm sure Eric and Steve can jump in on this as well, but some of the red flags that I see are uh, um, when I see um, when I see clauses that have nothing to do with the um, with the with the the business relationship that we're talking about. Like maybe it's a work for hire contract, and then it has all this licensing stuff in there, and licensing stuff about. You know, I, I don't even want to bring up like what what might be because it can be anything. But uh, when you start when you see when you see clauses that refer to two different two fundamentally different types of business relationships in the same contract, that can be a clue that somebody doesn't really know what they're doing. Um, when you see, I've seen contracts where there's copy pasted clauses that are either repetitive or or incorrect. They might just have have incorrect law in them. Um, those are usually people that don't know what they're doing. Um, and then as far as uh, the people who are trying to be a little bit slick, that is often people who are drowning you in these super long contracts with super tiny font and they have footnotes and like you don't ever really need footnotes in, in a contract that's that's really unnecessary. And contracts, I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to put a hard limit on it, but a contract does not need to be. Uh, I've never. I've never seen a contract that needed to be longer than twenty pages. Let's say in the game. In the games industry, I mean, obviously you have very extensive licensing agreements and business arrangements and stuff like that for other industries. But but in the games industry, when you're talking about selling design or selling art or something like that, the contracts that I write are eight pages, six pages. You know, I mean, including including signature page. Yeah, to yeah, my view would have been I think eight to ten, and that's just because I'm a little more detailed. Yeah. People might be. I mean, in terms of I you know, traps or things to look out for, um, I'll raise a couple of, of flags. One is in the games industry at least, you're gonna see a lot of work for hire contracts. That is not as common anymore with fiction, but it is if, if you're doing licensed fiction, for example, if you're writing in the Star Wars universe, for instance, that's all going to be work for hire because the people owning that property, whether it's a game or a movie or what have you, need to control that intellectual property. But there are times when that's not necessary or when it's a bit of a it could be seen as a bit of a rights grab by the company preparing the contract. You know, the other thing that is sort of a red flag to me is when I see a contract that has been prepared entirely from the point of view of one party. You know, the company has prepared it and all the terms benefit the company. It doesn't make any effort to be balanced. Um, you know, for instance, you in this day and age, you'll see a lot of contracts saying, you know, that it's gonna cover, you know, print publication and every other form of publication ever conceived of from now until the end of time. 
And the reason for that is back in the 90s, a lot of publication com- you know, publishing companies got trapped when e-publication came along and all of a sudden authors were wanting to negotiate new contracts. And so contracts these days are often going to be prepared very broadly so that that doesn't happen anymore. The company doesn't want that. But by the same token, if they're wanting all those rights from you, they should be willing to pay for them. And that should be part of the contract that you benefits you. It shouldn't just be them grabbing what they want and giving you nothing in return. That's something you may have to negotiate for, and it may not be a point you can negotiate strongly on. But I think it's something particular to be aware of in this day and age when methods of publication are changing almost day by day sometimes. That, that, that does highlight a really good, uh, a really good red flag to, to look for. One thing that, I, that I'll notice is, let's say you have a termination clause, um, and it, this contract was created by the publisher, you're the, you're the game designer, let's say, and in the termination clause, they can terminate with 24-hour notice or immediately, and they have to send you an email, and that's going to count as notice, et cetera. And then you, if you well, want to terminate it, it takes three months, right? And you have to send them... You know, you know, it, when you have when you have terms that are not balanced between between the the two parties, like Steve was saying, that that that's a that's definitely a red flag. That that shows me that, or that indicates to me that uh, the person who prepared that really only had one party in mind when they created that uh, contract. I mean, in particular for termination, if one party has the right to terminate for any reason, the other side should typically have the same. Exactly. Right. So you want to see the balance. You want to see a balance. Uh, it's not always exactly the same because there is a there is going to be a different positioning for for each for each party. But uh, but yeah, you you normally want to say, you know, is there a reason why I need to give more notice than you do? Is there a reason why I need to keep these records and you don't? Something like that between parties there should you should be looking for the reciprocity of terms between the two places to go back to something um earlier talked about on length of contracts yeah for for around if it's you it's usually under 20 pages but i did want to show this relic of things this is all one contract in video game realm on a on a complex deal they can get large and be entirely in good faith but not in this industry. Yeah, yeah video games can get quite complicated in the gaming industry, for, in the role-playing game industry, for it to be worthwhile. Yeah, right. There's a lot of money in the video game industry, and that's why that contract is so thick. Right. Um, uh, some, somebody else brought up in the uh, in the chat the the question of in perpetuity, and um, I I think that's an awesome question. I think it also makes me want to establish a couple of sort of broad things here when we're talking about a couple of different terms. Um, we're throwing around things like licensing and work for hire and, and that, those sorts of things. Generally, I um, mean, you're going to see both of these kinds of contracts in the, in the games industry, but work for hire in plain terms is you are hiring somebody to, to perform a service for you and they are an independent contractor you're giving them money, they're giving you the service, they're writing the thing, and you own that. The person who bought that owns that. They own that work product. You um, have any rights in it. And you have no rights in it as the creator of that. No, no, moral, no, uh, no moral rights and no, no copyright, nothing like that, no IP, uh, no intellectual property in that. Um, licensing is different in that, for instance, when I uh, 
work in the industry as an, as an artist, I don't do work for hire contracts. I write my own contracts and I do a licensing uh, arrangement where I'm creating the, even if it's a commission, it's to the client's specifications, but I still own all the rights in that work product, in that creation, in that piece of art. And I am selling the publisher, let's say, the right to use that art in their product in certain ways. And what that does is that means that they are only really able to use it in the ways that I have deemed appropriate. That's, again, one of the reasons why you use a contract is because we're, we're, we're discussing and negotiating what those ways are beforehand. And then once it's created, it goes to them. So in perpetuity, I mean, I have signed, I've written contracts where the licensing is in perpetuity. Um, that's, that's totally fine. It just means that they are able to use my art in that way in perpetuity. I still retain all the additional rights that have not been licensed away. Yeah. Now, for example, in writing a contract for my company for Hero Games, if I were hiring you, Rob, to do art for Champions Universe, which has specific licensed characters, I could never grant you a contract like that. I have to control the images of those characters. But for my fantasy genre book, which is generic fantasy art, I could probably work with you and do a contract like that where you retain the rights to do something else with the art. I would just want, for example, maybe your first publication rights, I would want you not to use it in other gaming products. Things like that so, it would be limited to other uses, like you can make t-shirts or posters out of it. That's a common thing, I think. Right. And that, that gets into the issue of, of, of exclusivity. Comfortable. Oh, I'm sorry, I, I interrupted you. It's just what everybody needs to feel comfortable to, to cover themselves. You know, there are, some companies are going to be a lot more strict than others just because of what they labor, the strictures they labor under. Right. And, and, and you know what, I, that, that's a great point to bring up because I shouldn't say that I, I would never sign a, a, um, a, a work for hire contract. Cause I actually, I mean, I have where it's been, I've been working on somebody else's uh, IP. So that, that is, that is a, a situation where it's not a generic IP, like a fantasy IP or something like that, where it's actual characters. Deb, what do you see more at white wizard on these things? Well, I, I hear what they're saying because I've also seen it in uh, some of the recommendations on the game design groups that you should never sign an agreement in perpetuity. And um, we generally do not do agreements where we do not have perpetuity. And I will explain why. So maybe people can understand why publishers are looking for that. Not all look for that, um, but some do. We put a massive investment into every game that we do from a marketing perspective we put our brand behind it. We, so far, at least with the games that we've signed and developed from other designers, we've put a lot of work and development into the game. So the game, we we feel like we've improved it significantly from where it was from when you know we signed it. Even though we always think a game is completely awesome if we if we do sign it, um, but we don't want to put all that marketing in. And then so we've had someone, for example, who said, "Oh well, you know, I'll sign this, but if sales drop below like you know thirty thousand games a year, then I get the rights back." And we're like, "Well, thirty thousand games a year is a huge volume. So what you're saying, if I put a ton of marketing into." your game and for like five years it does incredible and then it drops below you know this very high number now you can take it and go 
you know, sell it yourself. That doesn't necessarily seem fair either. So I think with any of these questions, you have to take it into context as like, what's the overall relationship? What is the overall deal? What are you trying to get? And I would say if someone's looking for in perpetuity, two things, one, what investment are they going to put into the game and commit to putting into the game? Are they kickstarting it? You know, maybe for example, if they're kickstarting it, you get money right when the Kickstarter ends, get your percentage right away. Like things like that are the things you can get because you're agreeing to the in perpetuity. And then what happened? Are we still on stream? Someone I think we're still on. Oh, okay. Right. So that's one. And then also, um, what if they don't publish your game and you and they own it in perpetuity? So you need to make sure that you have some protections in the contract. And this is something that like I learned about after we did some of our contracts, but like I think it's important for designers to make sure that there's a clause in there okay. that if your game is not published by a publisher, that you then would get the rights back. Because if they're not publishing it, and they're not putting an investment, then there is no reason for them to keep it in perpetuity. So there should always be like an escape clause, if that's probably not a legal term, but you know, <laughs> an escape clause so that if you know they don't end up publishing it at all, that you would get it back. Or and also maybe some minimum sales. Like if they publish it and it never does well, then I think you could arguably say, oh, in that case, you should get your game back. But the case that, you know eventually you'll get it back when they've put in a ton and it's done really well. That's, I think, what the publishers are looking to protect themselves when they do want it in, in perpetuity. Yeah, if I'm saying that right. Yeah, no, I think, uh, Debbie, you raised a good point there that, you know, in the gaming industry in particular, for writers, and I don't know if this is as true for artists, but as a writer, I used to sign an awful lot of contracts that would say that the money or some significant portion of it was payable upon publication of the game and that would had to be done because publishing the game is how you get part of the money to pay for it that isn't as common anymore for one for one reason it's not necessarily fair because the publisher can control when the game comes out and that means you often need you should have a clause like you're saying that says if it hasn't been published publishing defined this in such a way by this time i get it back or i get something else but the other th reason is the advent of Kickstarter makes it so that now companies usually have the money to, they, they know they're going to have the money to go out of a certain time. And so, you know, you can get paid and you know, these days you're much more likely to see terms that are something along the lines of X percent when you turn it in and X percent at this point and the remaining 50% or whatever upon successful conclusion of the Kickstarter. You know, but yeah, making sure you cover what happens and what defines publication is very important when that is key to getting paid or to controlling if you're selling a whole game to somebody to controlling the game. Right. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, and this is also why you don't want to just look at examples online, like attorneys see the latest and greatest clauses that are being added. So like, I'd never seen that clause of, oh, when the Kickstarter ends, I want to get my percentage out of those funds when they hit your bank account. I never saw that in any of the online templates I've seen or contracts that people have shared, but that came up from someone asking me for it. So this is, um, I'm just giving in one more reason why working with an attorney is good because they're seeing on a day to day, what are the new things that people are asking for that are reasonable? They're getting worked into the new, more modern contracts. Yeah, the, the wheels of legal forms and form books grind very slowly. It takes yeah. time for the industry to catch up. But a practicing attorney like Eric already knows these things and can count, account for them. Yeah, the most recent 
the most recent change I sort of started making to contracts based off things I was seeing on Twitter, even, I mean, up to last year before the COVID attacked, um, when we were getting to the whole, you know, so-and-so in the industry turned out to be a very problematic person who was attacking people and shouldn't be let back into conventions. I started having to add on to some clients' things. Hey, if we notice that, you know, this, you know, you as a designer are doing something that would reflect poorly as, you know, we have the right to give sort of, uh, to do some sort of kill license deal and not uh, be forced to keep going. Were, were you putting like morality clauses in them for reversion or was it? Um, it was more giving, uh, a, a more generalized one was sort of, um, if it turned out that the game designer started doing racist, sexist rants that were easily shown, because you have to have something that triggers that isn't like uh, too vague. It has to be something very provable in court. Yeah. And you say, okay, well, you have 200 words of things where you've directly attacked people for stuff that would not fly at Metatopia. We have the right to sever all of these things, stop paying you, and let you do what you want. Yeah, because we've all seen it how in this day and age, one person like that can tar a company's reputation for life, even though they have nothing to do with him. And so that's a very good idea. I hadn't even thought about that. That you know, is well, something and it, new. And it, and it it's very bad if people are asking them to cut ties, but there's some reason why they literally legally cannot cut ties because their flagship title and, might have that person's name on it understand that yeah because you're okay you get into the situation where you're obligated to spend you know to uh ship out 3500 copies of the thing you have uh you know 2500 of them already printed and now this goes down you have you need things in the contract that go okay here's how we're going to split it so that you don't bankrupt me as a small publisher uh, uh i Eric, you said something that, that brought up a, a big point that I want to lay out there for everybody, which is um, the terms of the contract need to be things that you can actually figure out in an objective manner, right? So like you were saying, something where it's, oh, well, we're going to write it. We're going to put a clause in there where, um, you know, if you say X, Y, and Z, then we get we get to terminate this contract immediately. We get to terminate this business relationship immediately. You need to have in the contract, well, what are those things that can trigger this clause? And they can't just be general, like, oh, if you say bad stuff. It's like, no, when we when we do advertising contracts, we always have moral clauses in there, but we have to list out what they actually are. It can't just be, oh, you said something people didn't like, because people don't like a lot of stuff. But we put in there, you know. If you say something, you know, engage in hate speech, homophobia, blah, 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 blah. And we list those things out. Say, I mean, this even goes for terms that people might think are fairly obvious. Like if you see, uh, if your royalties come out of net profits, well, okay. What, what is going to be used to calculate the net profits? From this, how much of a right do you have to examine the company's books? Exactly, who's going to keep those records? How, what notice do you need to give them before you can look at them, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. Those things are going to be in the in 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 uh, 
usually the more sophisticated contracts because obviously if something comes from you know okay well i'm going to get i'm going to get x percent of your kickstarter total right well that's obviously a public thing and so you can negotiate that out between the publisher and the writer or designer or what have you um and they can figure out on their end how much their profits are going to be behind you know behind the veil or whatever and then what percentage of the gross they are willing to give you now we've got about 10 minutes left i think right do we want to see if there are any more questions somebody uh, brought up sub licensing which i think uh is a really great really great question this kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier with the um with licensing deals when you are selling a license to something um there's going to be different ways that you can structure that that license so um you can you can sell a non-transferable license which means that uh, if eric's the the buyer and i'm the seller eric can use it in these ways that i that we have negotiated but he can't sell that to steve or sell that to deb and then they get to do that thing with it because my deal is with eric not with them you can also have you can sell a transferable license in which case eric would have the ability to to do that and uh the the um generally the more power that eric is going to have over that property the the more he's going to pay uh, the more i'm going to ask him to pay for it right so if it's a limited individual non-exclusive non-transferable right to something he's going to pay less than if it's a perpetual exclusive transferable etc 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 right some deals do need to have the rights being transferable especially if, as an example if a game designer commissions an artist and then the game designer goes to a publisher the publisher needs to have an assignable right from the artist because the publisher is not the game designer and so those things need to be connected that way it's uh all to say you can do this this yourself find a lawyer at some point just to make sure you get the yeah as it gets more complicated and especially if you get a contract where you're like i don't understand what this means mm -hmm. You you should get you should get you should contact you should contact Eric you should contact me you should find there are people who it's unsurprising there's a lot of lawyers in the game design community yeah uh, you can find us yeah another thing you can do is I know most state bars will have a free referral service where you can contact them and say I need an attorney who handles contracts in this city can you refer me to someone and they'll have someone listed that they can hook you up with. And that guy may be willing to give you a free consult. He may charge a small amount in advance. It just all depends. I just wanted to comment also on the sub-licensing question, because I think the person asked specifically about foreign licensing. So from our perspective at White Wizard Games, we generally do look for sub-licensing rights in our contracts, which means that we'll ask to also have the right to sell your game through our foreign partners in other languages. And while the terms, I, 
I think off the top of my head, they're like similar percentages of uh, the revenue, the actual amount, it's it's the revenue that we get from our partners. So for any given game that's sold, it would be a smaller percentage because for example, we work with Yellow to do our French and Devere to do our Spanish and they have their own investments in marketing. They're producing the game, they're taking you know some margin out of it, but what we get as a percentage, then the designer will get a percentage of that. The reason why I think you should consider doing that is if you're working with a publisher who has pre-established, like we have pre-established relationships with these are top publishers like Hobby World in Russia, who do publish our games in other languages. And it's really time intensive to go around and try to do that yourself. So if you have a partner who's a publisher who wants to do it, and and for us, we generally will want that. And that'll be a big deal to us because otherwise we'll have to treat your game different than our other games. You know, I, I, I can think of one example when we didn't have that in a contract and because it's, you know, really well-known game designer and he wants to negotiate that after the fact. So when we come to the point when we're looking at foreign partner license, maybe that we still do the same thing, but he, that's how he does his contract. So, you know, depending on your position in the market, you might be able to negotiate that out. But if a publisher has that as standard, they're probably going to want to do that with you too. I, I personally think it's really beneficial if you can work with a publisher who has established partners, get your game out there in lots of languages. I think it's, it's, uh, I, I personally, that's what I would want to do if I were a game designer, but you know, I'm a little biased because I'm a publisher, so you can take it with a grain of salt. All We have three minutes left. This is now about time when we should be plugging where people can find us if they have future questions. I also know that I'm personally heading to the Discord uh, sort of panel discussion thing to chat with you all. And but. Uh... Let me, I'm not going to plug myself, but let me quickly public plug. Here are a bunch of books, contract considerations for writers. You can find them on Amazon. You can find them in many cases in your local bookstore and pick those up as a preliminary rather than, you know, jumping online to look for things. A book at least has been vetted by a publisher and edited by an editor. Yeah. Uh, I'll plug my, uh, I mean, I, you can find me as nerdy paper games on pretty much everything. So Instagram, nerdypapergames.com, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, um, I'm always, you can send me an email. Um, I work as chief counsel for an audio production company. I don't, I don't run my own firm or anything like that, but any basic stuff, I am super down to, to help walk people through, um, and uh, I also work on uh, uh, Legal Eagle, which is a YouTube show, um, and uh, I will I will vouch for for that show. Um, some awesome, awesome uh, discussions of various things like IP law, contract law, etc. I'm Debbie at White Wizard Games, D-E-B-B-I-E -B -B -E at White Wizard Games, or Deb, Deb, D-E-B, D-E-B on Twitter. And you can also contact me through uh, White Wizard Games social media. I, I might not be the person who gets the message, but they'll get it to me. And I'm Eric Whalen. I do this for a living most days, so feel free to reach out. Uh, this is usually what I'm thinking about, uh, to plug a book. You will see this from other panels. This is for artists. It is the Artist Guild book. It has a section on where to find pro bono lawyers uh, if you qualify. Uh, you can also find me at 
this, I did not, oh, it shows up right on the, um, yeah, there you go. The camera. Oh. I'm surprised. But uh, you can email me there, and if you just use the thing before the at Google, you'll find me everywhere else. I'm working on the website and social media presence. <laughs> One last thing I'll plug. I mean, you can reach me at steve at stevenneslong.com if you need. That's pretty simple. But on a related note, tomorrow at 1 p.m., I think Rob and I are doing a panel on copyright law. Yes. Um, so... If you are interested in the related subject of no, you know, copyrights and all yeah. the, are you in that as well, Eric? Fantastic. Yes, it's okay. nice, Steve. We'll we'll do this together. <laughs> we'll do this to, together tomorrow at one, and we will talk about Title Seventeen of the U.S. Code. Yes, my favorite. <laughs> the panel I'm in tomorrow is about pricing your art. So if you're an artist, you should hop into that one as well. You should go see both of them. All right. I think we're about to disappear suddenly. Did you say right. there's some sort uh, of chat? Thanks for all the questions, everybody. That, that was excellent. So much. Great, great questions. Thank you.